um, we are going to be in the book of Haggai today, chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. Alright, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and I'm just going to read through that now, and then we'll get into the text. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So we've been reading in Judges, and Haggai is a bit of a ways from Judges. And so just to give some context of kind of where we're at in the Old Testament narrative, um, if you want to... You don't need to turn there now, but at the end of Second Chronicles, specifically chapter 36, there's some really good context as to kind of the events that lead up to, the, to Haggai right here. So we read of um, the, the temple in Jerusalem getting destroyed by the Babylonians um, that come and actually take the Jewish people out of Jerusalem, the people of Judah at the time, bring them into exile, bring them into Babylon. And then we read of, right after that, the Persians who then come against the Babylonians. And we read of this King Cyrus, who the Lord works in his heart and actually allows him to say to the Israelites, return back to your home country, and I want you to actually rebuild the temple. And so the narrative continues in the book of Ezra, and you can read of Cyrus commissioning the Israelites to return home. He actually gives them some of his own workers and some of his own wealth, um, and then he says, go and rebuild the temple to your God. Um, and as Ezra continues, specifically in, ver- in chapters um, 3 and 4, we read of some opposition that arises against the Israelites. And so the opposers see the Israelites rebuilding the temple, and they, they essentially form a complaint to the, the new king of Persia at the time and say, this is a danger to your kingdom, and these people are going to be unruly. You're not going to be able to control them. It's a threat to your empire. So the king of Persia um, issues a decree to the Israelites and says, you must stop building. Um, at this point. And specifically as far as the progress the Israelites make, they are able to create an altar to the Lord and they're also able to create the foundations of the temple before this decree is made. And in Ezra chapter 5 at the very beginning you actually read of Haggai's name specifically um, right after Darius the king is mentioned. And we, you can read and it basically says like work on the temple had stopped up until this point. And so as we enter Haggai we can understand that Haggai is going to come with a word from the Lord. He's going to try to spur the people of Israel on to continue building the temple. Um, 
And it's actually kind of a beautiful image of restoration as the temple is destroyed in God's judgment against them. And now is a time of rebuilding in which God is going to dwell with the people again. Um, but as we enter Haggai right now, we can understand that the people um, are not currently working on the temple. Um, one, because of the decree, but also as we read, it seems like there may be some other reasons for which they've stopped their working. So in verse 1, we just kind of get some more context. We read, this is all occurring in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Um, we read that the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai, and it comes specifically to um, Zerubbabel and Joshua, um, the governor of Judah and the high priest. And so we see that the, this word is being carried out um, to some of the most important people in the land at this time. So this is a word that is coming to be effective. Um, these are people that have great influence over the Israelites, and so um, it makes sense why the word would be delivered to them. In verse 2, we kind of see the first declaration that the Lord makes. He says, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We see God essentially just declaring the people's heart posture. He says, this is what you people say. This is not what I say. This is not what I've commanded you, but this is what the people are saying right now. Um, you say the time has not yet come to rebuild. He doesn't say that the people have um, determined that they'll never rebuild the temple, but they just push it off. They say, not quite yet. Um, I think a really good quote I read from Matthew Henry as I was preparing for this, he said, there's an aptness in us to misinterpret providential discouragements in our duty as if they amounted to a discharge from our duty when they are only intended for the trial and exercise of our courage and faith. And so I think it's pretty safe to assume that um, as this decree was issued for them to stop building, the people in a way took this as God's providence to say, okay, we don't need to keep doing this. We can now focus on our own labors, our own pursuits. Um, but it seems as if they did not exactly interpret the Lord's will correctly and likely even use that as an excuse to stray from his will for them and pursue their own desires. So as we continue reading, we meet, we read more of what, this prop, what Haggai has said directly from the Lord. In verse 4, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? We see a direct comparison between uh, the people's houses and God's house, which is still lying in ruins. It's incomplete. It's unfinished. It's likely not even close to being done. Um, and he makes a comment about the fact that they are dwelling in paneled houses, which um, would likely indicate that they're using something called cedar wood, which was very rare at the time and hard to find in the land. And so it was actually a sign of prosperity and wealth. And so these people are not, they're not just returning after exile and building up a house out of necessity, but they're actually taking pride in what they're doing. They're pursuing it out of their own desires, um, and they're exalting themselves in their building. So in verse 5, we continue to hear what the Lord has to say to them. Um, he says, a very simple statement of consider your ways. And this is repeated again in verse 7 that we'll get to. Um, but it's a very just simple declarative statement of kind of just like, Stop and think about what you're doing and, and stop pursuing your desires that are going to lead you astray. Stop pursuing what seems so natural to you um, and just consider your ways. And in verse six, or, yeah, in verse six, 
he kind of explains what they've been doing and he explains the fruit of their efforts. And he says, because of this, you should consider how these things have been going. And he says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So we see that the people have a lot of effort. They're not lazy or lackadaisical. Um, they're trying to eat and drink. They're putting an effort to clothe themselves, yet they're still not warm, yet they're still not filled. Um, we see that they're working hard, they're earning wages, yet they're putting their wages in a bag with holes. Their wages are not being sustained. They're not staying. Um, and a verse that I thought of from Matthew 6 that Jesus says is, is after he speaks on anxiety and worrying about worldly things, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And he directly basically talks about um, clothing, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Jesus says, don't worry about these things, but pursue God and his righteousness. And here we see that the people are pursuing these things, which are not bad in and of themselves, but they're pursuing them um, not with God. They're actually pursuing him despite God. Um, while his temple's in ruins, they're off pursuing the things that they think are going to fulfill them. Um, but we see that God says, consider your ways because the outcome of your pursuits is not fruitful. And in a way that, that could be alarming to the Israelites that perhaps um, what they say the time is for is not actually what it's meant to be for. So continuing on, we read um, in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways once again. Um, it says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So now we see this shift from what the Israelites um, are doing, and now God is telling them that I want you to go pursue what I want you to do. I want you to go pursue what brings me glory and what I take pleasure in. Um, this is a very stark contrast to what they've been pursuing, what they've been desiring. Um, I think we can read this and think of it in, in almost like a God being selfish kind of way, or um, why is it all about God's glory? Like, what's up with that? And in reality, there's actually mercy in this statement to the people because the truth is they would never be fulfilled by those things that they're chasing without Him. Um, for we're image bearers, we were made in God's image, and um, we were made to commune with Him, and we're only going to find satisfaction by seeking His glory. Um, for when we seek His glory, we are also satisfied. And so this isn't a this isn't like an either or. It's not pursue what you want or pursue me and glorify me. But it's like, no, I made you to glorify me and you're not doing that. Um, and I think there's even a part in verse 8 where he says, bring wood and build the house. And we can see a contrast between um, the paneled houses they're making with the cedar wood. And he says, bring wood and build my house. And so it's like they're using the same resources for just the completely wrong thing. They're using them for selfish gain instead of what the Lord would want of them. We continue reading in verse 9 and kind of understand, I guess, why the people's efforts have been so fruitless. And it's because God is actually directly against them right now. Um, he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So we understand that God is just straight up telling them the reason why um, you're 
sowing a lot and harvesting little, the reason why you're eating but you're not filled, the reason why you're um, earning wages but you don't have anywhere to put them is ultimately because of me and because of the ways that you're disregarding my house. Um, this made me think of Jesus saying, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not des- destroy or thieves cannot take, right? Where we don't equate God to those things, but ultimately um, it's, it's wisdom in that we need to look at where our treasure is. Is it in heaven with God? Is it in treasuring and um, admiring him? Or is it in our, our worldly and pursuits that are in vain? Um, and we just see a, a display of God's sovereignty even that he's king over the outcome and all these things, that it's not about the effort they put in. It's not about how well calculated their plans are. It's not about the odds of something happening. It's God saying that I, I, I'm the one that blew these things away. I'm the one that did not allow these things to happen. Um, and so they're essentially fighting against an, an unstoppable wall that they cannot but break through. And it doesn't matter how hard they try, but he's not going to let them get the thing that they want to get the wrong way. So we can continue reading in verse 10. Um, Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labor. Um, so can we kind of get a picture here of how exactly God is doing these things, where um, he has power to withhold rain, he has power to prevent produce from growing um, he can call a drought on the land um, whenever he wants to. Um, he says on all their labors, um, he's with, he is withheld. And he's brought a drought on all their labors. And so there's just this massive um, declaration of God's sovereignty and his power over all of these outcomes. And it really puts into perspective the wrong thing that the people are fearing as they believe that their own pursuits and their own strivings are going to get the right outcome but in reality it's it's all God and it's all ultimately his favor um and Matthew another thing Matthew Henry said was um our creator is our best friend but if we make him our enemy we make the best friends we have among the creatures our enemies too and one really good example of this would be something like the sun where um created by God and ultimately if God is our best friend then it's for our good um, and so in the summertime, we can maybe feel the wonderful warmth of the sun and just appreciate it for what it is. But then in a season of drought, suddenly such a wonderful gift has now become your worst nightmare. Um, and so there's just such great importance in whether or not God um, is even, you know, on your side. Um, so I think reflecting on this text as a whole, obviously we don't have uh, a physical temple to look at anymore, but we do have... Um, the truth that God now dwells within us as believers in His Holy Spirit. He makes His home with us. So I think in a lot of ways we can look inwardly and and realize that we are to steward the gift of grace well. And God has called us all to a very high calling. And um, He dwells within us and and we are to live our lives in such a way that um, seeks to bring Him honor and Him glory and not to leave His temple um, destroyed and, and ravaged and not to seek things that are contrary to him. Um, and I think it's so easy for us to do that daily and continually. And um, oftentimes it's just we need to consider our ways. We need to consider what we truly think is important and whether or not we believe that God is king over all outcomes or we believe more that our own strength 
and our own power will bring us what we want. Um, there's also great comfort in seeing the sovereignty of God in this passage, I think, um, as we think to Christ, as we think to God being sovereign over um, the mission of Christ and Christ going to the cross, that God didn't have a plan B, that um, Christ going to the cross was ordained from the beginning of time, and um, there was never any shadow of a doubt that that plan was going to fail. Um, and so we can rest in the fact that the same sovereign God we see here um, can view us with perfect righteousness through Christ, that he doesn't, he doesn't count our sin against us, um, that in the same way we may view him as against the people here, he does not judge us for our sins, he may discipline us as sons and daughters. Um, but wonder, what a wonderful and joyous thing we can, we can see that the God of the universe is, is on our side through Christ, and he ultimately is king over every single outcome. Um, and so I pray that we can rejoice in that, while also taking seriously the charge to um, have a desire to glorify him and to believe that we are most satisfied in that, in that glory that we try to bring him. So, yeah, with that, uh, I'll pray real quick, and then we can get into discussion. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight, um, thankful for this opportunity to gather, thankful for just your word and your truth, God. I just pray that we would take it seriously, um, that we would not just let it brush off of us, but that we would take it to heart. We would let your spirit convict us, that we would let let it work in us. I pray that we would um, just be thankful for your revealed word to us, um, the Bible being the complete revelation of who you are, God, and your truth, and what a wonderful thing it is to be able to know you through it. We just thank you for Jesus and the fact that you don't count our sins against us because of who he is, that you love us enough to send your son into the world and die for us, Lord, to bring yourself glory and to commune with us and to bring us into fellowship with you. Um, and so I just pray that we would reflect and think about the ways in which we maybe are not surrendering our lives to you and not keeping your temple intact above seeking your own pleasures and desires. Um, I just pray that you'd be with us in our conversation and um, help us to just glorify you tonight and have thankful and rejoicing hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.